Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. Renaissance people, welcome back to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where I am very, very excited to have G. Cooper back on with us to discuss the Titian List. We have brought Titian sort of from his beginnings, working with Giorgione, working under the Bellini, and then we did this sort of crazy attempt at his life in three paintings where we looked at his assumption at the Frari, we looked at his portrait of Philip II, which is going to be very important for us today, and then we looked at his playing of Marsyas, that gruesome, brutal, and somewhat lovely painting that I'm obsessed with, um, to really show his painterly style. I brought G on today because we're talking about the Titian list, which is really a concept of an afterlife of a painter, but really how his presence in the courts during his life changed the projection of courtly painting in Europe. So Titian is still our most central figure, but we're going to be looking at courts beyond his lifetime. And G is somewhat of a of a an expert in this case, right? <laughs> But you've had some changes since the last time we talked. You're still working for the National Trust, but what are you doing now and, and what's changed? Yeah, so hello, everyone. So, yeah, I'm still working for the National Trust, um, but I have moved properties. I'm now based um, at a house called Montpesson in Salisbury, which is quite unique for being um, a townhouse rather than a country house, but still very much, you know, in the realm of... Um, heritage, which I'm still involved with. So I just want to set the stage for us really quickly. Um, so you've worked with courtly collections in the 17th century as part of your master's research. Do you want to explain that to us a little bit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So for my um, my master's, um, it specialized in the sort of the concept of the English country house, mainly in the 18th century, but to begin with, we delved with quite an extensive amount of research into the sort of origins of the English country house, um, which does start in sort of the late 16th century and really solidifies by the 17th century. And one of the aspects of my research was not just the sort of the country house as a building, but um, also it as a sort of a, a container and receptacle of things you know, objects of art in their own right. Um, and, you know, these country houses have often immense art collections that have been built over generations. And one of the things that we delved into at the beginning of the research was sort of how do these art collections manifest? How do they, how did they come into being, particularly in England when um, before the 17th century, art collecting was really not sort of a fashionable thing to do and um and it's sort of in the reign of Charles the first sort of in the first half of the 17th century that it really sort of takes off as a fashion that would continue well beyond the 17th century awesome you know I just want to say our previous conversation was was in this vein but it was the actual architecture how does yes. Palladio the Venetian uh, Renaissance architect who sort of revives the temple front concept and uh, how does that get integrated in, into English architecture? I want to say as of today, sometime in July of 2023, I checked on our interview stats and we've had, and this is, this doesn't sound like a lot in, as far as numbers are concerned, but for a podcast about something so very specific, um, 2,500 people have listened to it, which oh, is, that is fantastic. Yes, it is. It is. Um, uh, but, you know, th names like Palladio and English Country House are not big draws for people, typically. Um, <laughs> it's very niche. Yeah. Titian is another is another story. Titian but, is very niche. <laughs> yeah. um, so, well, let's let's um, contextualize where we are, where we were and where we're going, because there's a couple of Charleses and we don't want to confuse our Charleses. <laughs> lots we, of Charleses, lots of Phillips. Right. And we don't want to, you know, I crossed my wires trying to prepare for this. Philip II, we talked about, we talked about his portrait, not the portrait that I'm, I'm showing on the screen here, but we talked about his portrait, um, by one of his many portraits by Titian, but he also commissioned a set of six, well, completed six, seven, um, works of, um, 
mythology based off of Ovid from Titian during his reign, during Titian's lifetime. So they knew each other. Titian worked for him. Um, he did this through the next image. You see the equestrian painting of Emperor, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So the Charles I that is central to the concept of the Titian list is not Charles V. And he is somewhat, what would you say, G, 50 years after? I um, um Yes, I, I would say sort of 50, 75 years sort yeah. of after. Right. We're in the next, we've really transitioned into the Baroque period in Italy. I don't mm. know what that means, that period in, in, in England, but uh, the Baroque period in, it, mm. in, in Italy. Um, so Charles I is not Charles V, but you'll see there's this um, pictorial connection that we're going to talk about. <laughs> okay. So more or less, Charles I goes to Philip Philip the Third's Philip the Fourth's court in Spain. Philip the Fourth's, yes. Right. Who would be, of course, two two generations or two not gen- whole generations, but two reigns. Yeah. After Philip the Second. So when we say that Charles the First solved Philip the Second's collection, Philip the Second's dead, right? Um, but that is the work that he commissioned from Titian. And this is going to change collection practices um, across Europe, frankly. So um, let me hand the floor to G to to catch us up on Charles I and what's going on here. Absolutely. So um, as you can see, uh, Charles I's reign begins in 1625 and ends quite abruptly in 1649 uh, when he is beheaded that's one of his big claim to fames uh, the big tumultuous event of Charles I's reign is what we call the English Civil War um, well over in England we just call it the Civil War but obviously that would get quite confusing for international audiences so Charles I was quite a, a controversial figure at the time but really, the story begins um, in terms of his love of art um, just before his reign. Actually, he uh, his first foray into art collecting is actually upon the death of his older brother, uh, Prince Henry, who was supposed to inherit the throne. Uh, Charles inherits his elder brother's art collection and love of art collecting and in it's in 1623 that he is um, embarks on a journey to Spain with the hopes of marrying the Spanish Infanta, uh, the daughter of Philip IV of Spain. And it's here that he's really absolutely enamored by this amazing art collection that has been built up by the Spanish Habsburgs at this point. You know, he's really gets to see the impact that an art collection can have on the prestige of a monarchy. And that is something that he really appeals to him, sort of the idea of that self-aggrandizement and trying to improve his image um, via this immense collection of art. And of course, uh, central amongst all of this art is several, several works uh, by Titian. And it's been cited in multiple sources that one of the artists that was really highly esteemed by uh, Charles I was was Titian. Sadly, this um, this visit really doesn't come to anything. In fact, it leads to almost almost war between England and Spain because this this alliance does not come to fruition. But what does happen is this introduction to art. In fact, as part of the marriage negotiations, um, Philip IV does at first offer several Titians to Charles I, um, the, um, including a portrait of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, um, uh, the Venus del Prado, um, the Rape of Europa, several paintings by Titian. Um, only the Venus del Prado and the, the portrait of Charles V actually leave Spain um, with, with uh, Charles I um, because the it's a complete disaster, really, absolutely disaster, and it never really takes off. But we do end up with this amazing legacy of art collecting for I, Britain. I sort of wonder, um, mm-hmm. especially thinking, you know, when I think back to sort of the earlier conversations about how 
cultures build themselves and how styles are either accepted or rejected. And when you have political adversary, you typically do not likewise inherit an artistic taste from that adversary, right? I think of sort of, not maybe in terms of, of, of conflict, but Italy during the Gothic period at the, the height of the Middle Ages starts to adopt this northern architectural idiom, but ultimately decides this it's sort of foreign and doesn't accommodate their needs. And this is where the Renaissance is kicking off and Roman revival kind of usurps Gothic because it's this other northern beyond the Alps sort of art style um, to come from England to Spain to not find this sort of uh, allegiance that you're looking for, but to still adopt or crave or seek to inherit a collection similarly, I think that that speaks to the art itself, a testament to the impact, like the visual impact of the painting collection that kind of goes beyond the concept of the political alliance. Does that make any sense to you? Does that? Absolutely. And I think it's, it's so interesting because, you know, in collecting in Britain at that time, before Charles I, it's very, very, concentrated you know there are only a select few people like you know uh, Charles the first elder brother or um Charles the first's mentor confidant the the very close friend of Charles the first's father James the first um who was the Duke of Buckingham uh, George Villiers had an immense collection of Italian art um including Titian's and Lord Arundel who was um one of the possibly the great early collectors of of Britain at this time and so but he interestingly enough tended to focus more on collecting sort of northern art uh, Flemish uh, Dutch pieces so it's interesting to see that there is that collection of sort of more localized art but then you do start to see this desire for something that is sort of more intellectual more they they see it as something that is further removed from what they currently already have Mm -hmm. and so that is seen as as a mark of aristocracy it's all about proving your superiority over the masses and and one of those elements is this amount of education that you possess and this intellectual superiority and at this time really because because of the impact of the renaissance Italy is seen as this sort of hub, as this heart of this intellectual superiority and this superiority of taste almost. And I think even though you have rivals with Spain and England, almost the rivalry, and this does happen later on, comes also from this desire to compete and collect these works of art. And, you know, they they compete and try to outdo each other with what they can collect and what they can amass um, in terms of art and artists. So I'm not sure actually about Philip II's court, but the way I understand with Charles I is that his very impressive Titian collection, we're going to, we're about to get to that here in a second. I'm going to transition us here too, um, is actually private. It's not on full public display. It's in his sort of some, I forget the name of the room. uh, Well, several rooms, but personal it's meant for showing off but it's not meant for general public consumption it uh, is it's 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 interesting how royal palaces particularly whitehall operates at that time so whitehall is the name of the main royal palace in london um its biggest claim to fame nowadays sadly it's burnt down but the one thing that survives is the amazing banqueting hall that was built by inigo jones uh, with fabulous Rubens ceiling. Talked about Inigo Jones in the last one. Yes. So yeah. this this is this is very much the Charles the First. This is the era of Inigo Jones, of Rubens, and of course we'll talk about later on Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Um, but yeah. So at Whitehall, it's a labyrinth of a palace. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, it, you know, it was bigger than Versailles, bigger than any other royal palace at the time, but it was just a rabbit warren of rooms, some more public, some more private. And this this Titian list, this list created by um, uh, Van der Dort, showcases the various rooms and the various levels of 
public accessibility to this collection and you do see that the more private you get sort of the more exclusive you go into these royal apartments called the privy lodgings the more exclusive and more important the art gets and so by the time you get to sort of the the privy chambers you do see quite a collection of of titians that Charles has amassed over his reign stay with us we'll be right back renaissance people if you are enjoying the italian renaissance podcast i have good news we're now active on patreon you can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources information and artworks better yet those who join the renaissance master or renaissance patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month my goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. So let's backtrack a little bit because what I re- what I wanted us to to what I what, what I want us what we will look at here mm-hmm. um, is what Charles the first saw when he was in Spain. Mm-hmm. This is an awesome little little link that I'll try to to put up for people, and it's just. It's talking about Titian's Poesie paintings and what the Poesie paintings are. We talked about Poesie with Professor Schmitter on Giorgione's Tempest. And what we were discovering is it's really hard to, to present a solid definition of what a Poesie painting is or a Poesia painting. Um, because for, for Giorgione, it was the, the painting itself expresses a sort of poetic uh, sentiment because with Tempest, we couldn't really figure out what was going on. It was more about color and composition and the storm and the feeling. And some term that poesy of painting, the feeling a painting designed to, to um, give off a poetic feeling. But in this case, poesy paintings are something different. They are specifically after Ovid. In this case, Metamorphosis and other classic works, probably the Fasti, but as we see, six paintings were produced over 10 years from 1551 to 1562 for Philip II based on Ovid. That means paintings that are showing, and Ovid is, it's not prose, it's verse. So paintings that represent a certain amount of verse, right? We looked at the Metamorphosis excerpt for the Flaying of Marsyas. I read that to you in my best Ovidian attempt at making it sound good but the paintings represent these verses and therefore are it's called a poesie series so six were completed there's a seventh that never made it to spain but the national gallery here has has been great to put the six here and i'm just going to show them really quick before we land on europa because we want to talk about europa don't we yes Um, so he does Danae, really um uh, uh one of these paintings that people kind of tie back to venus of urbino and Venus and Adonis, Diana and Acteon. I think the seventh piece is actually the scene where Acteon is is um, what's he killed? Sent at, turned into a deer, and is this the one turned into a deer? And they she sends the dogs after him or something? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Diana and Callisto, which it doesn't show the full thing here, but marvelous. Perseus and Andromeda. Another really marvelous piece. And then ultimately, Rape of Europa. So, you know, looking at Rape of Europa, this is the piece that is in the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, the the museum that had that very, very famous heist. And there's like a Netflix series on it. And I watched one episode, (laughs) um, you know, couldn't I didn't watch any more. But that's just in Boston. So that's about an hour and a half uh, for me to go see this. So this made it to the United States. But I think all the others are between the Prado and 
we've we've got quite a few in in Britain. Yeah. And this this is the one that got away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are the the original paintings that were in Philip II's Titian room that Charles I saw, and they were meant to accompany each other. Um, so what do we have here? And I want to just look at style because we talk about style so much. Because Playing of Marsyas is one of the last works he does, and it is extremely painterly, textured. Um, this is somewhat before that of some, I guess, 15 years or so, 10, 15 years or so before Marsyas. But we really see um, a full painterly approach, the sort of thing that the Impressionists later pick up on, right? We, we said uh, Edouard Manet specifically studies Titian. Um, um, but in any case, uh, what's the story here for Metamorphosis? Jupiter has seen Europa and he's interested in her, so he transforms himself into a bull. Remember, metamorphosis is about change. Most of these things are transformations. Port Marsyas was transformed from a, a, a fawn or a satyr into um, flesh, just a skinless husk, which is awful. Um, we see this all the time, like uh, famously Apollo and Daphne. Daphne's turned into the laurel bush. All of these stories are about changes. So he transforms himself into a bull and seems docile and seems peaceful in Europa, gives him this wreath across his horns, and then he takes off, right? And it looks like he's kind of swimming in a wave off of the shoreline. And you can see these mountains in the background. Artisans just kind of brushstrokes. You can see them, and especially when you get up close and personal with his painting, um, very, very kind of rough paint strokes and we've always talked about florentine disegno venetian colorito and when we were talking about bellini who of course titian trained under we were very specific that there's actually more of an interchange between florence between the venetian school that this really like structured divide between disegno and colorito is a little exaggerated but by time we're in the middle of the 16th century this is venetian colorito this is um the the emphasis on brushstroke on color disegno outlined underdrawing perspective it's thrown to the wind guys right look at these figures the perspective to me and maybe you agree or not g um is a little off the proportions are off but we're really moved by the brushstroke looking like the texture of the bull and you can even see I told you guys, he uses an impasto, this thing that Van Gogh is famous for, this big glob, one stroke of white to make that eye glisten. But when you look at the painting in person, it's actually really thick paint, and you can see the paint. And Venetia, uh, Venetian, mother, <laughs> Titian's not trying to hide the paint or, or create nature. He's trying to create a poetic effect based on a poem, right? Sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> Do you have something to say about this? No, it's 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 fantastic um you know i think i i really enjoy the sort of the like the, the background the, the blue is just so vivid i think that's the one thing that i'm i'm just really drawn to and i think i said to you um earlier i think this is what what really appeals to i think the contemporary audience at the time or sort of post-contemporary audience in the sort of early 1600s is this fascination with just the ability to create movement in a still piece of art because i think you know you you talked about sort of sort of the sort of the, the more solid forms say of of bronzino etc but you you see the same thing in the sort of the history legacy of portraiture and art in britain prior to uh, the 1600s which i mean pretty much art is just portraiture by that point it's very it's very static it's very flat and you know you start to see these influences really creep in this you know this the the depth of the fabric and the fact that you can just see it moving and catching the light you know i think it's something that really captivated our audiences at the time and i think you can really see why titian was so highly revered as an artist um by these collectors and why he was so emulated by by artists, you know, long after his death. Yeah, and we're going to jump back away from this. I just wanted to kind of give everyone a taste of this. Um, but just for um, people who who are new to to talking about um, 
art in their titles, especially when you're looking at things like Ovid. Um, it's called the Rape of Europa, and he is taking her, and that is really what it means. And there might be some kind of non-consensual consummation happening, but rape, the word rape itself does not mean that in this case, right? If we see sculptures like the Rape of Persephone, it's Hades taking Persephone forcefully into the underworld. It's the stealing of someone, right? Now, there is implications about sexual acts that come with that, but the word rape in this case does not, um, and I'm sorry I'm saying it so much, but it doesn't mean that explicitly. So the topic of the actual episode, we've set it up, <laughs> we know what's going on here, um, and we're probably near the end anyway, but this is the the, the, the birth of the Titian list. Charles I sees so much, so many works by Titian in Philip II's uh, collection, well, Philip the Fourth's collection that was made by Philip II and um, makes one of his own. So where does this list come from, G, and why is it so important? So this is a list that's created, I believe, in 1639 uh, by a gentleman called Abraham van der Dort, who is quite a significant uh, figure because he's actually um, the first of what we call the surveyor of the king's pictures which interestingly enough is a, a role that still exists. Um, of course, uh, recently we've had the, the severe, surveyor of the Queen's pictures, um, but um, throughout history, the surveyor of the King's pictures was responsible for, well, the title says it all, the surveying of these, these pictures, but really the curating of what became known as the Royal Collection, which is the collection of art um, amassed by many, many generations of uh, sovereigns of England, Britain, the United Kingdom. And really this collection, the nucleus of this collection is really created by Charles I. He is the first sovereign of, sort of the early modern era to really take an interest in art that isn't just portraits of himself and his family and the monarchs that came before him because before that, that's really all that there was to see in royal palaces. And so this list is really a, a sort of a compilation of his, his personal interest in art and sort of a, a collection of really his, you know, his ambition, his intellect and his, his passion for art that sort of transcends what was already commonly available in England at that time, which was not a lot, to be very honest. <laughs> and I, just to give people a little bit of uh, insight into how this process works, like historically, um, there I don't think as of now there remains just a book that was Abraham van der Dort's list of paintings in the collection. They're manuscripts broken up. Some have been rewritten copied from originals, the originals are gone, and they're spread out, right? Um, I don't think scholars, unless they are interested in the actual manuscript culture, would actually read this image that you see. There are brilliant transcriptions that I tried to read, and I realized they're in Dutch, so he's not even writing them in English for the English, for Charles I, who, did he know Dutch? Do we know? I know I, I didn't. Uh, I don't, that's a very good question, actually. I. I don't know. I mean, certainly he had a huge interest in Flemish and, and Dutch art, uh, but it, it is interesting that it is composed in Dutch. Yeah. But, you know, these transcriptions are available. I have I, I tried to read them. I don't know Dutch. And I think it's kind of like Dutch. Lat There's some Latin in there, I think, mm -hmm. but I'm not. Send me to the Mediterranean. That's where my, my bubble <laughs> is. But, um, so, uh so, yeah, I mean, basically just recording. And there was a second list that if people decide to jump down the rabbit hole, um, what was it? What was it? It's it, at his execution. His yes. So this this list was produced in 1639, which was just on the eve of what would later come to be the English Civil War. Um, it mainly kicks off in in 1641, but there are echoes of it around this time. And then another list is produced uh, after 1649, 
about a decade later, which is after the execution of Charles I. And this list is really created because, I mean, one of the reasons Charles I was so unpopular was because of his extravagance. You know, he took the country quite deeply in, into debt and he had quite a lot of debts. And after he was executed and overthrown by uh, the Commonwealth government, government, he those debts still needed to be paid. And so one of the ways that Cromwell and his new government decided to go about settling these debts was to amass a huge list of all of these works of art and to sell them. Um, and there was some some success. It wasn't really that successful. A lot of these paintings were actually undersold for their value. Um, a portrait by Van Dyck went for about four pounds. Um, you know, you could, I think, a, a, a Titian went for about a hundred pounds, and that was considered one of the higher end end ones, which is quite extensive when you think about the amount of money that Charles actually spent amassing this collection. But one of the interesting things that happens is because of the failure of this sale to garner sufficient uh, revenue, rather than sell the paintings and then pay off the debts with the cash from the paintings, they just started to give away the paintings as as a way of paying off the debt itself. So um, (laughs) there's a a recent article um, that went up about a, a Titian that you know, was recently came up for auction that had been given to, I think it was Charles I's plumber, um, who was owed a debt of about £900. But rather than being given, he was given £300 in cash and then a collection of art, including this Titian, to, to pay off the debt, you know. So it's interesting to see how this collection ended up being dispersed and we can bookmark that because i actually have uh, a, a little bit on the article at the end of the presentation i'm yeah. sorry i think i've jumped ahead with that's that okay. one <laughs> that's okay. so um so I, you mentioned van dyke and i think that's important because part of what the titian list does it helps us contextualize what our point is in the beginning how titian's work is changing art in the courts in this period mm-hmm. and van dyke for different reasons, A, for Charles I's own taste, but also his own artistic curiosity is going to be looking after Titian for a lot of works that he does during during his, um, his uh, what do we call it, his employment under Charles I, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what we're talking about is essentially looking at Titian, we're looking at Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and similar equestrian portraits of Charles I by Van Dyck who's looking at Titian. It, uh, I know we, we kind of briefed on bringing these this comparison up, and I really hope as a non-Van Dyke expert by any stretch of the imagination that this is the portrait you were talking about. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And I think you can, you can easily, I mean, just straight away, just the, you know, the pose is pretty much identical. You know, it's, they're mirror images of each other. They're both on on horseback you know they're both sort of in the midst of of riding you know resplendent in armor and i think that is is the most obvious sort of similarity between them but i think also if you think back to when we were looking at the rape of europa and that color palette and that way of painting i think and and i pointed out the the blue sky funnily enough Right. You see that, I think, in this portrait of Charles I by Van Dyck. I think you really see how Van Dyck was, you know, inspired by Titian, as well as Charles I also being inspired by Titian. I think it was quite a, a perfect match um, for t- Van Dyck to come under the employment of Charles I in a similar to way to Titian being um, at the court of Charles V about 100 years earlier. Do we think that, you know, the court painter um, isn't new at this time. We know mm-hmm. uh, Fran- uh, Francois I employs Leonardo da Vinci as a court painter. We talked about Mehmed the Conqueror once Gentile Bellini or in other, any Italian, really, he would take anybody. They sent <laughs> Gentile Bellini, wanted an Italian court painter. 
right? There's this kind of the Ottomans want Italian court painters, the French want Italian court painters. So is Van Dyck seeing himself in light of an Italian tradition? This is a complicated question. I don't think I, I prepped you for in light of an Italian tradition, or is there something else going on in the North that he's a part of? Um, is this happening in England before this moment is my question. Well, I think it's interesting that before, like I say, the, the idea of a court painter, as you say, is not new. It's not new in England either. I mean, you think back to Henry VIII and his court was heavily painted by Hans Holbein. Wow. Um, and uh, even even before Van Dyck arrived on the scene, Daniel uh, Mitens was effectively the court painter at the court of you know, James I, Charles I. Uh, you also had um, Cornelius Janssen or Johnson, um, who was another uh, prolific portrait painter. These were deeply popular at the time. Uh, you had uh, Robert Peake and William Larkin also painting. I think the amazing difference is just what Van Dyck brought to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something quite unlike if you look at any of these previous court portraits, even ones of Charles I by Mitens, they're very flat. You yeah. know, the, the, the backgrounds have no interest. Generally, there's sort of a, a weirdly perspected Turkish carpet on the ground. There might be some sort of prop or, or table or something. The perspective is not always the best. Um, the idea is just to almost not to depict the figure as they are but more because really in this at this time the general public had no idea what their sovereign looked like apart from images on mostly coins to be honest mm. uh, but what's interesting is van dyck introduces as i talked about earlier this idea of movement of this interest to these paintings and it's actually a portrait by van dyck of uh, Nicolas Lanier, who was one of the, I believe, what's the word? I don't know. I know, I'm trying to think. Um, sort of intermediaries of art collecting for Charles I and other courts and, you know, other nations in Europe at the time. And uh, Lanier is actually painted by Van Dyck. And it entered the royal collection. Um, Charles I had it, and he was absolutely enamored by this portrait that looked so unlike anything that had been painted before. And probably to him, he thought to himself, "I could have my own Titian at court." Yeah. And yeah. and you know, I think that was really his goal was to to have a court painter like Titian so associated with the court and prestige of Charles V, Philip II, to have something of his own. He's seen what is possible with an art collection. His next thing on the list is to have his own painter. And it, it's actually interesting that even though Van Dyck starts off his career and he, he paints his own um, poesie, um, but actually once he's under the employment of Charles I, it's strictly portraiture. and you see them, they're prolific. It's, you know, it's not just Charles I. I mean, there's a running joke that most country houses in England have a portrait of Charles I by Van Dyck. No. That's how prolific they are. Um, but he's also painting, you know, his wife, his children, his friends. There's a certain prestige associated with having a portrait by Van Dyck after this point, which I think is a testament to, to this impact. And I think what's really important, and uh, we're going to transition away from the from this set of portraits in, in a second here, um, is that it's not just copying Titian, right? You you have a, a sort of a smoother brushstroke, more in line with the Dutch tradition, um, mm -hmm. and but you're still the composition is Titian, but you mm -hmm. still get these painterly aspects kind of fusing with a smoother finish. Right. Because I think Van Dyke's port equestrian portrait here looks a lot and it's not just the grain of the photo. It's he's not. It's a reduced version of this really heavy brushstroke that that Titian uses. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not just copying. 
because um, we're seeing this a lot with Poe's. And we see this with the poses for what is it? The eleven Caesars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's our our next transition here, where um, where Titian did these portraits of, and you know what? You know the history of how he's gotten his collection, and I'll let you, I'll let you um, take that on. But what I will say is, as far as this image is concerned, we're talking about this this royal collections recorder. There is also the royal engraver, Robert Van. Burst, Voyerst, Voyerst, I don't know, Robert Van Burst, um, <laughs> who who does these engravings after Titian's portraits. And that's how we, how we have at least the author, which is relevant to to this portrait by Van Dyke of Charles I. Um, that is in a private collection, was on loan to the Phoenix Museum. So I only found a black and white photo of it. But um, can you talk about this relationship and, and how Charles I got these Roman portraits and um, how he's employing them in his own image. Absolutely. So, as I said, after, so when Charles I goes to Spain, that's in 1623, he's not yet king. Um, and in fact, that was once he became king, his ability to go abroad was reduced to nothing, um, which meant that going abroad to collect art became impossible for him and so he did have to rely on other connections intermediaries people who would report back to him and something amazing happened well for Charles I anyway the uh, the Gonzaga uh, dynasty the Dukes of Mantua in Italy there so a series of quite um short in succession uh, deaths of the Dukes of Mantua led to the, at the time, present Duke, who happened to be in a significant amount of death and was, despite his brother and father and grandfather being avid art collectors, he himself was not. And so he just see, saw this burden of an art collection that he had whereas he had no money and you know war was a constant um thing in italy at this time so you have this collection that comes on sale lock stock and barrel the whole thing this amazing collection of um titian mantegna uh, da vinci there's all sorts of you know charles i would have seen this list and would have thought this checks all the boxes. This is this is what I want. This is what I need. And so he buys the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. He actually buys all of the collection apart from, funny enough, these uh, set eleven Caesars by Titian and the Triumphs of Caesar by Mantegna. Those were sort of held in reserve because they were seen as the the jewels of the collection, and it took a bit more persuading to actually get those <laughs> to part ways uh, but he did get the whole thing wow. and and so this was really the the jewel in the collection and actually it caused even further of a, of a rift between England and Spain because Philip the fourth also really wanted this collection and didn't get his hands on it so as I mentioned before about this sort of competing for art collections, this was one of the main ones I was referring to. This, uh, the Gonzaga collection was one of the greatest, well, would be one of the greatest um, sales of art until the sale of Charles's own collection right. a, a few decades later, ironically enough. Oh. Wow, that's really fascinating. And it, it, you know, this kind of word when we were talking about doing this together that that we made up, this, uh, d- Titianomania, right? Yes. <laughs> now we talk about Caravaggio mania after he died, and every and everyone's copying him and trying to get his works and the whole basically Baroque style. And Italy changes after that um, and continues to the present day. The same sort of situation is happening with Titian. It's it's his name is a must-have, especially for Charles the First. Um, and you know, I I meant to to prep for this, and I'm so foolish to have not done so. I sort of wonder why he's chosen the pose of Otho, who frankly is an emperor I had never heard of <laughs> until doing this, um, because 
you know, are we likening ourselves to Roman emperors as like, is he, you know, doing an equestrian, you're always thinking of yourself as a Roman emperor, you have the Holy Roman Empire. But when you have a portrait like this, which is kind of like made up by Titian, and the pose is made up, but it becomes representative of a Roman imperial identity. And I'm wondering if Otho had anything to do with um, Roman conquest in England, because we know Hadrian brings it all the way up to, to of course, Hadrian's wall. Um, and I, I don't know if you know anything about that. If not, we can just like get away from that. But I, um, That's very interesting to think about. I don't actually think, I mean, certainly I think Otho was emperor during sort of the occupation of, of Britain. But I don't think, I, I can't sort of think off the top of my head of any sort of real stark yeah. connection there I, might I think, be there might be i, I mean i yeah. just thought maybe it'd be fun mm-hmm. to to explore but really mm-hmm. kind of off topic here well i mean in a way like if you're if you're viewing yourself in light of italian renaissance painters but also in light of imperial portraits like what is the connection between it's like in in, in the quattrocento looking at byzantium is also looking at like in florence you're thinking of byzantium but it's also ancient rome right it's the it's the roman empire but they're also greek and it's trying to reconcile these cultural differences based on like a loose understanding and based on mythology around these places and empires and who they are and how you paint your own identity in light of them so i'm kind of curious is 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 italy is renaissance italy titian's renaissance italy the same kind of locality as the roman empire or is the roman empire england for charles the first that's kind of what i'm thinking about i don't know it is interesting to think about, and I certainly know that Charles I had something of a complex. Um, he was not the tallest of gentlemen. Um, again, another reason why his, you know, the most successful portraits of him are on horseback, which is to to disguise the fact that he was not very tall. Um, he also was forever. I mentioned before his elder brother, um, Prince Henry, who who died quite young, he was set up as, as the model prince. He was going to be, you know, the next great sort of king of, of, of England. And it never happened. And Charles I stepped in. And I think he always had this sort of inferiority complex of, uh-huh. you know, and, and I think this heavily links into what I was saying earlier, how when he goes to Spain and he sees what art can do for your personal prestige and so what we really see is a big part of Charles I's reign is image making and it, there's a reason why when you think of Charles I you think of Charles I by Van Dyck the mm-hmm. Van Dyck mustache you know you you think of that image it's completely on purpose it's the whole creation that Charles has really man-made it's it's a lot of artifice and it's intentional fantastic let's see so just to wrap up here what has been a really awesome conversation <laughs> uh, um is this was from i think the guardian and this was from 2018 but i just want to kind of show that this is still part of our part of the art world part of the collecting world this topic this that we're excuse me this topic that we're talking about so Titian painting given to Charles I plumber goes up for sale. You had referenced that this plumber was paid in paintings in part. Yes. <laughs> and that this magnificent, right, uh, painting of St. Oh, God. Margaret. St. Margaret kind of escaping the devil or whatever <laughs> in this very, very kind of traditional, what we're talking about, painterly titian style look at the background look how i mean it's just fantastic Not, the details are all given to the saint margaret everything else is just this loose kind of what do we say flipping brush strokes um this was just put up for sale so we're still seeing charles the first collection move around on the market after his execution which i think is just you know in 1649 did i get that right yep you know, so we're, uh, uh, you know, 500 years later, so, you know, just under that, um, seeing the effects of 
of this transition, the effects of Philip II employing Titian in the 1500s, doing this poesy series, which is just so beautiful, and Charles I going to the court uh, uh, to see these paintings in Spain. Um, what, do you know where that was? That Was that Madrid? Where was That this? was in Madrid, yes. Madrid. Going to Madrid, seeing this collection, and just uh, the ripple effect to Van Dyck um, and, and how this changes our, our perception of courtly painting, of um, afterlives, a Renaissance painting, but really that Titian becomes a central figure in a larger collection, kind of collecting culture that artists are emulating him as court painter, not really as Venetian Renaissance master, even though he is, but as court painter to either Charles V or Philip II or um, the Dukes of Mantova, because he does this series for them. Um, and we even talked about his series for Alfonso d'Este. So he's really court painter at the highest level, and that is an afterlife. It continues beyond Titian. In any case, any last comments, final words, anything to say, G, before we depart? No, I think, I think, I, I mean, I have such a huge love for art. And I think when, when I knew you were doing about Titian and my knowledge of Titian was purely through this sort of lens of how much interest there was in him after his death. I thought it was, you know, such an interesting collaboration to do. And I think I've, I've certainly learned a lot from this and no, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, me too. And just to pull the curtain back a little bit, you know, G and I um, message each other ad nauseum about these art topics. And it just so happens that my expertise really stops right where hers picks up. So uh, uh, yes, <laughs> I, was saying, yeah, I, I keep saying, you know, for all the, the sort of respective knowledge that we have, there is very little crossover, which is very entertaining. Right. You know, so, so I came in this, you know, knowing, you know, a fair amount about about mm -hmm. Titian's career. Mm -hmm up till you know i kind of stopped in the end reading about flaying of marsias was something that i had I, I was lucky to do for this so getting into the 1570s is a little late for me and then she's talking to me about charles the first i said charles who you know like i don't know what we're talking about here <laughs> um and after you know what two weeks of throwing articles at each other um we were able to finally mm -hmm. you know hunker down our knowledge and come to a mutual conversation that we could both have which i think mm -hmm. is is was really really fun and exciting so thank you so much for for coming on the show again well, thank you for having me all right renaissance people i'm going to conclude here thank you so much for tuning in and we will be back again but we're departing from titian on the next episode of course as usual follow us on instagram like us on facebook check out the etsy store which is growing and i think it's it's coming along really cool consider becoming a patron because a lot of the articles and scholarship that we talked about i'm going to have on the patreon in addition to i think i might do an exclusive episode on one more piece by titian um until then folks arrivederci <laughs>